Today's scripture reading is from Matthew 6, 25 through 34. Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not, more, is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all of his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, Will he not much more clothe you, O oh, you of little faith? Therefore, do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. This is the word of the Lord. Praise, Praise be, be to Christ. Christ. Thank you, Audrey. As Pastor Kevin Twitt comes up to bring this morning's sermon, I wanted to say something about Audrey, uh, who just read our scripture here. She, Audrey has just graduated from Belmont as an army nurse, and that makes her a lieutenant. So congratulations to that. And Audrey... Audrey has been part of our amazing choir. You see her uh, usually in the back row, the bright shining face in the back row. She's a reputation among, uh, in the choir for just having a, an incredible servant's heart. Uh, and we're going to be losing her this summer. And so I understand that you're going home to Mexico for a season and then you're going to be uh, assigned to an army hospital someplace here in the U.S. in October. Uh, so I just want to say blessings on your journey, Lieutenant. And uh, thank you for reading God's word to us this morning on this Pentecost Sunday. Thank you. Kevin. Morning. It is a great pleasure to be here this morning. Um, one quick little advertisement. I work as a pastor to college students at Belmont University, and if you have a college student or know a college student who might be interested, we do a thing called Summer RUF on Tuesdays uh, starting this coming Tuesday, so you can talk to me afterwards if you want more info about that. Okay, so this morning we're looking at this uh, wonderful passage from Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, and as I was thinking about this passage, even again it struck me as it was being read, sometimes we don't really hear what's being said. I don't know about you, certainly true of me, my wife tells me that regularly, <laughs> and I tell her. <laughs> it, isn't it how we get in fights? We go round and round. You didn't hear what I said. I didn't hear what you said. I think that happens when we come to the scriptures as well. Sometimes we hear like one phrase and it triggers something and we just kind of zone out and don't hear the rest of it. I think this is one of those passages that because it's so familiar, we may miss a big part of what it's actually saying. Because here's the thing, when you think about Jesus calling us and telling us that we shouldn't worry and shouldn't be anxious, if I asked you, how many verses does Jesus devote to telling us not to be anxious compared to the verses where he talks to us about the character of the Father, 
most of us, when we think of this passage, would say, well, you know, the focus here is on not worrying. But I actually think we need to learn and see afresh what Jesus actually says here. Because he devotes more time, more verses, to telling us about the character of the Father than he does just saying, don't worry. And yet I don't think that's how most of us hear it. Most of us hear, don't worry, and we just kind of stop right there. The problem with that is it actually ends up misrepresenting what Christianity is all about. And here's what I mean. The Bible never just gives us bare commands. Oh, it certainly tells us, here's how you should live, but it's always rooted in, anchored in, something about who God is and what He's done. The Bible doesn't just say, don't worry. Jesus doesn't just say, don't worry. He says, don't worry. And then he goes verse after verse after verse telling us about the character of our Father. As I said, he spends more time talking about the character of the Father than he does saying, don't worry. So what do we learn from this? Well, as we look into this passage this morning, I want to say a couple things. The first is this. Anxiety and worry is a real problem that Jesus cares deeply about. It's a real problem in Jesus' day. It's a real problem in our day. I've been doing college ministry for 21 years, and without a doubt, I see much more um, students, many more students struggling with anxiety and stress and those sorts of things than 20 years ago. It's not just in the cultural air that we breathe, though. I mean, there are real medical issues as well, but what Jesus is getting at here is that there's this spiritual connection behind a lot of our worry and our anxiety, and it has everything to do with what we think about our Father. As I said, Jesus doesn't just say, suck it up and quit worrying. Jesus cares about our worry and our anxiety enough to bring it up, and enough to help us. But I wonder, how do you hear Jesus' words in this text? Because I, I think one of the challenges in coming to the Bible is you don't hear the tone of Jesus' words. They're the words on the page, and you try to imagine maybe, how did he say this? And for some of us, we may hear this, these words as shaming words, don't worry. Why do you always got to worry all the time? <laughs> That's not real helpful. It's like telling somebody, uh, you know, on Christmas Eve, telling your children, oh, you just need to go to sleep. <laughs> you know, it doesn't work very well. I mean, again, Jesus, I think if you, if you dig into this passage and you start to, to consider why, how he spends all this time talking about the character of the Father, I think, I hope, you begin to hear these words not as shaming words, not as one more thing to worry about, but as inviting words. I hope that you can hear the ache in his voice when he talks here about the Gentiles running after all these things. Do you hear that as Jesus saying, yeah, we're not like the Gentiles. They run after all these things, but we're better than that. Or do you hear him saying, it breaks my heart to see all the people made in my image running after all these things when life is so much more than just being about what you're going to eat and what you wear. Do you hear the ache in his voice? Because Jesus didn't intend for us to live full of anxiousness and worry. Do you hear the tender invitation when he says to all of us, you don't have to live like this anymore. 
You have a father who cares for you. Do we actually hear what Jesus is saying? He's saying, I care about your worry. It's a real problem, and I want to help. So how does he help? How does he help? The first thing he does is he reminds us of truth. Remember, it's a key theme in the Scripture, because our fears are always connected to something we've forgotten about who God is and what he has done. And you and I, connected to our story, have certain ruts that we tend to go in over and over again, certain things that we tend to forget over and over again that even feeds in to our fears. As a matter of fact, you can't love someone very well if you don't know what it is that they regularly forget about who God is and what he's done. For some here, you know, maybe you, you really have a, an easy time remembering that God is sovereign over all things, but you find it more difficult to remember that he cares for you tenderly, gently. For others, it may be just the opposite. I know Jesus loves me. I know he cares about me, but I'm just not sure that he has enough power to do anything about it. And the way you encourage someone is different for those different circumstances, which is why it's so important to share our stories, to share our fears even with one another. Jesus speaks about the character of God our Father because he says if you're worrying, it's because you've forgotten something powerfully important about who he is and what he's like. He also says you're trusting in something that's inadequate. So he re reminds us of the truth, and then he shows us the inadequacy of what we're really trusting in. You see, worry is really a masquerade that covers up trusting in ourselves. So much of worry is a way of trying to bring control to our world, to try to create a safer world where we won't be caught by surprise. I, I was talking to my boys recently about how, you know, when I was growing up, if you wanted to ask a girl out on a date, we were watching a, a movie that kind of brought up the old way you had to do things. You actually had to pick up a phone and call. And almost everybody I know who's my age or, or, or older or younger has had the experience of like hanging up right before the, the, the thing started to ring, right? You're like planning out everything that you might say, right? And there, there's just something about trying to control, trying to think about every possibility. Well, she says this or does this, or if I get the answering machine, what am I going to do? And worry is like that. It's a way of brooding over things, thinking that if we just think about it more, if we just figure it out a little better, that we'll be able to, to create a world that's safe and free from pain. But what Jesus wants to remind us about is that you have a father who broods over his children like an eagle broods over her young. That's the image God uses in Deuteronomy 32. You don't need to brood over your life because you have a father who cares about every aspect of your life. The Gentiles run after all these things, and it's a word that implies panic and desperation, but we do it too. But again, Jesus uses most of his words here to talk about the character of our Father. And so it's worth thinking about. What kind of father do you think you have? I love these powerful words 
from the hymn, Praise My Soul, the King of Heaven. Maybe you know these words. Father-like, he tends and spares us. Well, our feeble frame he knows. In his hands, he gently bears us, rescues us from all our foes. Powerful words from the hymn writer, Henry Light. But how many of you would be shocked to know that the man who wrote these powerful words about the character of our Heavenly Father had himself a wretched earthly father? He did. His, his father and mother split up when he was in middle school back in the 1800s. We don't really even know what happened to his mother. She disappears from the record. Some people say she died. Some people say she left and took up with somebody else and moved to the big city of London. What we do know is that Henry's father remarried and promptly sent Henry, who at this point is a young teenager, and his brother off to boarding school. And from then on, when his father would write letters to his son Henry, he would sign them not your father, but your uncle. In other words, his own father told Henry Light, you can no longer call me father. As far as this world goes, you no longer have a father. And yet what's fascinating is that all of his hymns, basically, have, have such rich, powerful, tender words about his heavenly father. Henry Light, in spite of his wretched earthly father, or maybe even because of it, constantly sings about the character of God, his father, not just for him, but for us. But here's what you need to understand. It's not just something that he says it's good and important for you to know this. No, he wants you to taste it. He wants you to taste it. So he uses these beautiful, powerful words. Father-like, he tends and spares us. Well, our feeble frame, he knows. Do you know that you have a heavenly father like this? More importantly, do you relish it? Do you relish it? J.I. Packer, the great 20th century theologian, said that you can really take a pretty good assessment of how well somebody understands Christianity by how much they make of the fact that God is their father and they are his adopted child. And so it's worth asking, how much do you think about your heavenly father and what he's like? Is that what you think about when you pray? Is that what you think about when you read the Bible? When we come together and take the Lord's Supper, are you thinking, this is the meal my Father has prepared? What do we think about when we think about who we are and who our Father is? Jesus doesn't want us to just know we have a Heavenly Father. He, he speaks about it in such powerful sort of imagery that helps us to taste it and to relish it. He wants us, when we think about the birds and we think about the flowers, he wants us to think, oh, I have a heavenly father who's like this. It's not just enough for you to say, okay, yeah, I can check off on the theology exam. Yep, God is the father. <clears throat> no, what do you think about when you see the birds and you see the flowers? Does that call to mind? Does that then become an opportunity for you again to say, oh, I relish in the love of the heavenly father that I have? So what does he say about the Father in particular? I love this. He says that the Father knows you need these things. Sit in that. Don't run past that. The Father knows what we need. The Father knows 
I don't know about you, but for me, so much of worry is me trying to keep in my mind all the things that I think are important. Sometimes I even need to write little lists so that I don't have to keep thinking about these things. But even more important for me to know is that the Father knows. It's not up to me to keep in my mind everything that's going on. I can't possibly juggle all those balls, and I don't have to. Because Jesus says, you you have a Father who knows. You have a Father who knows. He knows even before you tell Him. He knows whether you forget or not. He also tells us the Father knows each day has enough trouble of its own. And I love this because Jesus does not say that being a Christian means pretending that everything is fine. Some of the things that we worry about are born out of real trouble. And Jesus doesn't shame us for that. He says the Father knows, and the Father knows that this world is full of trouble. But still he cares. Still he cares. Jesus says your father knows you're not up to the task of being God. Eugene Peterson, whose translation, The Message, I find really helpful, he's written a number of other great books, but he said one time that so much of the bondage in our life comes from refusing to embrace that we're finite beings, that we have limits. He says one of the the most wretched kinds of slavery and bondage that you can have is to think if I just tried a little bit harder, If I just worked a little bit longer, if I just was a little more clever, then everything would work out fine. That's a lie from the pit of hell, and it keeps us in bondage. Jesus says the Father knows that you can't take care of all this stuff. You need it, but your Father knows, and He cares for you. He cares for the flowers. He cares for the birds. Aren't you worth more than them? See, Jesus is saying, do a little little gospel arguing with yourself. Say to yourself, self, Jesus cares. The Father knows, and I'm more important. Let that sink in. Jesus says also that you need help in focusing on what matters. And that brings us to this seek first the kingdom. What's that about? Seek first the kingdom is not just something that you do to make sure it's a little checklist that you check it off. You say, well, before I pray for this thing, I'm going to say, Father, I want your kingdom. Okay, I got that dealt with. Now I can go on and and kind of deal with things that I need to deal with. No, seek first the kingdom is an invitation to be part of a revolution. See, Jesus comes to us and he says, There's a new way to be human. I love that phrase by my friend Charlie Peacock. There's a new way to be human. A new way to be human, to understand that you have a father and that Jesus has come and say, seek first my kingdom. What is that about? You need to remember that when Jesus spoke these words, the people that heard these words first, they had a king. They had Caesar. And everybody was supposed to live by this motto that Caesar is Lord. They were to vow allegiance to that. So when Jesus here is talking about seeking his kingdom first, he's talking about way more than just a privatized little religious life where you have your prayer time and your little quiet time and you try to do good things and go about your business. No, Jesus is saying, I'm inviting you to a revolution. Seek first my kingdom. There's something so much bigger going on. I'm bringing a kingdom, and my goal is to make all things new, 
to bring healing and wholeness to everything we sang in that hymn about shalom. Shalom is basically everything being made right as God intended. And God is committed to that. And Jesus wants to stir our hearts with this kingdom language. Because so often we think of the Christian life as just being about following the rules. And Jesus says, no, it's about seeking first the kingdom. That doesn't mean that he doesn't tell us particular things about what that looks like, but it's so much bigger than just following the rules. I don't know about you, but it's hard for me to get my heart around the idea of a king, or even wanting a king. I mean, I'm an American after all. Isn't that what it means? To be American, we threw off the king so we could do what we want. But I remember a few years ago being on a mission trip over to London and flying over there. Um, my seat, unfortunately, was the middle seat of like five. You know, in the middle row, they got the two, and you got the middle five. And I was in the middle of the middle five with people I didn't know on either side of me. And when you're 6'3, that's not a really great place to be. But I remember I'm reading the end of The Lord of the Rings. Now, if you've seen the movies, you may think that the, that the point, you know, when, when evil is destroyed, that it's basically over, but the book goes on for hundreds of pages. I think if you ask Tolkien, he'd say the real ending, the real climax is when Aragorn is crowned king. And all through the book, you have this kind of two themes that go together, that the true king will be known because he has the hands of a healer. We sang about that in the offertory. But also, the true king is known because he bears the sword that was broken, and it's now been reforged. And so it's the image of healing and all things being made right. And that's how the true king is known. And in the Lord of the Rings, when Aragorn is being crowned, it's so beautiful, I'm just sobbing on the plane. And I'm sure these people are like, what in the world is going on? And I was thinking, how did Tolkien manage to make this American, who kind of defines himself by the fact that we don't have a king, weep at the sight of the king that we all long for? But that's what Jesus is inviting us into. A much bigger story, a much bigger hope and an expectation. Seek first the kingdom invites us to do more than just follow the rules. Following the rules is just too small, and it has a tendency, you know, to make you worry about whether you're following all the rules. Seek first the kingdom is about nurturing a longing, the longing to see shalom extend to all of life. It's living for a goal or a telos that orients our loves. Seek first the kingdom shows us this life is about more than just what we eat and what we wear. It's about the healing and flourishing of all things as God intended. Seek first the kingdom is about God's people working and longing for what God works and longs for. It's about having the things that break God's heart break our hearts. To do that, we need to pay attention. Disciples need to stay close. Listen, everybody here is living for a kingdom vision. When my kids say, not fair, that's born out of an idea of what the kingdom should be. What's the kingdom vision that's animating your heart and your life? Why are you doing what you're doing? Seek first his kingdom. Now, I don't know about you, but I woke up this morning and I was, the first thing I thought about was, man, I want to get on Twitter and see what people are writing about my predators. <laughs> Wouldn't it be amazing if when I woke up in the morning, the first thing I thought is, I wonder what people are saying about my king. And I wonder how goes his kingdom. I wonder what's breaking God's heart today. 
that needs to break mine. I wonder what he's rejoicing about today that I need to rejoice in. And brothers and sisters, I'm not there. But Jesus gives us three really important practices to help us. He gives us prayer. You know, earlier in this chapter, Jesus says we're to pray to seek first the kingdom. Pray his kingdom come. And that's to be a regular practice where we pray, Lord, bring your kingdom. It needs to come here. It needs to come here. I see it. I see areas where the kingdom needs to come. And so we're to pray the kingdom prayer. But we also are given the word. And, you know, when you read the word, it's an opportunity to commune with God and learn more about the things that break his heart and the things that bring him joy and hopefully become modeled after his heart. And then we have the supper. The supper is about nurturing a longing for his kingdom rather than our kingdom. We, we, we celebrate the supper, we remember his death, and we proclaim his death now, every day, every week, as we long for the great feast of the Lamb that's coming. So this supper actually nurtures our longing for a kingdom that we need. And that brings us to the last thing. What did it mean for Jesus to seek first the kingdom? See, here's the thing. N.T. Wright has a great little book on the Lord's Prayer. And, and one of the things I love about this book is he says, for every one of the petitions of the Lord's Prayer, you need to ask, what did it mean for Jesus to pray this prayer? And what did it mean for him to pray it with the integrity to say, I offer myself as part of the answer to this prayer? He actually says that that's how we should pray it as well. Not just, Lord, bring your kingdom, but Lord, here I am. I want to offer myself. What did it mean for Jesus to seek first the kingdom? Well, you know, it meant submission and suffering. It meant death on a cross so that life may break forth. And when we come here today and partake of this supper, it's about nurturing and molding and reshaping everything. It's about entering into this revolutionary kingdom where life comes out of death. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you that you have a kingdom. And we thank you, Lord, that your kingdom began before we did and that you invite us into it. And Lord, we thank you that in inviting us in, you invite us to find what we were truly made for. Oh, Lord, Forgive us for having such tunnel vision. Forgive us for failing to long for the things you long for and to work for the things you're working for. Thank you that you give grace to fools, mercy to sinners, and that we can gather even now and say, Lord, feed us, heal us, help us. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.